what is it, 90%, I think, of all small businesses go broke. Yeah, in the first two years, yeah. And they're the lucky ones mm. because they've gone broke. Out of the whatever it is, 10% that are still there, 90% struggle. The thing that really captivates me about the whiskey making process and why I fell in love with it is it's basically, you can break it down to three elements. Number one, it's simply science. Then there's the interference in that scientific process. So human beings, the master distillers, interfere in that process. The thing that I really love more than anything is we can determine to an extent what it is we're looking for. But you'll never know the character, the elegance, the spirit of that whiskey until it's matured. There's magic at play. John, great to have you, mate. Thank you. You're a man of principle. You're a guy that I've uh, enjoyed getting to know in the little time I've had a chance to get to know you. But, um, you know, today's conversation for uh, all of our audience, I think uh, those of you in business, those of you in, uh, you know, any form of life, I think we'll get some value out of our chat, but we'll see where we go, um, mate. So let's see. So, let's see. Uh, I know you're a humble man, so you may not uh, care about that, but I know I'll find, I'll find some value in that. Um, so anyone who doesn't know John Ibrahim, the John is uh, in the distillery game, in the whiskey game, and that's where you are today. And we'll talk a bit about that, and we'll talk about all sorts of things. I'm sure you have a uh, a distillery down in Tasmania that I've had the privilege of visiting, Callington Mill, um, and you're involved in the game quite deeply uh, in the Tasmanian region. And uh, love to hear a bit about it, mate. Love to just talk mm. about how you landed there. Maybe if, you, if you're if you okay, just tell us a bit about how you've landed in whiskey land. Yeah, well, well, there's a little joke that I'll start with. I've been in the ethanol business for cars all my life. So I've had petrol stations and I tell people I'm still in my core business because that's been one of the values that I've always held is never change your business. <clears throat> Don't be a jack of all trade and master of none. So I've gone from ethanol for cars to ethanol for humans now. <laughs> so still in the same core business. Well, the journey goes back to, to my love of nature. Mm. So Tasmania for me was simply about the climate. I couldn't live in the mountains of Lebanon. Mm -hmm. This is where, where I wanted to live. So the next best thing was Tasmania. So I bought a hobby farm in Kempton and that's it. And I wanted to plant some veggies and things like that. And Bill Lark, <clears throat> came across and said, can we lease a little paddock? We want to build the whiskey distillery. And that, that's, that's what captivated me. I thought, how can anyone make whiskey other than the Scots mm -hmm. or the Americans with bourbon? So anyway, cut a long story short, we said yes. And that was my introduction to whiskey. And then to my amazement, as I learnt about whiskey, Back to tracking a little bit, I always wanted to be a farmer, although I know nothing about farming. Don't you respect farmers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, food's very important and, and fresh food. So I thought, well, we've, he introduced me to whiskey and, and I was captivated with the whiskey making process, but more so that it was basically whiskey was an extension of farming. Mm. And I thought, wow, I could actually add value here, you know? So that's was, that was my introduction to it. Now, Again, watching what the Tasmanians were doing, understanding where they took whiskey to, to the elevation they took it on the world stage, 
and then having gone to Scotland and gone over the, around the world with Bill Lark, studying the process, I could see where Tasmania was and I could see where it needs to go. Okay, so I was privileged enough to then take it on that trajectory. And that's what I started and that's the journey started back in 2016. So since then, I've invested with, still am a shareholder with Lark Distillery. My partners, Salim and Danny from Dasco, they're my brothers and my partners. So I, I actually said to them, I said, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go into the whiskey business down in Tasmania. There's no money in it, <laughs> right? It's Bit a, of a hobby. <laughs> yeah. It's a passion. Yeah. I really don't know where we're going to go, except that I love it. Do you want to come on board? And, and you know, Sam and Danny said yes. And I, 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 said, I said, there's a caveat there. I said, only invest what you're prepared to lose, right? So, and, and they agreed with that. So we, we went on that journey. We invested with Sheen Distillery with two gentlemen, one's named Damien Mackey, who's well-renowned in the Tasmanian whiskey scene, and David Kernke, who was the owner of Sheen Estate. So we joined forces with them, partnered them, and we scaled that business. Simultaneously, I was working on my the love of my life, which is Callington Mill, where I had 100% say in everything because Sam and Danny agreed to be silent partners. <laughs> so I was involved with Sheen. We built that up simultaneously doing Callington Mill. And when we got Sheen to a certain level, I spoke to a prominent person in Diageo and he said to me, he said, John, which brand you're the face behind which brand? Is it Sheen, Mackie, or Callington Mill? And that resonated with me. So I wanted to represent a brand. So at simultaneously, Lark approached me to, to buy out Sheen so they can build a new Lark distillery. So I approached my partners and I left the decision to David Kernke. And I said, Dave, if you sell, we'll sell with you. Cut a long story short, we sold it to Lark. And I was very happy with that. So Lark now are going to build a Tasmanian-made turnkey whiskey distillery at that facility. And we've now got Callington Mill, which is the first 100% Tasmanian engineered, Tasmanian built, commissioned the whiskey distillery in Tasmania. And it puts us on par with the Scots. The, most Scottish whiskey distilleries have their stills made by Forsyth. As a matter of fact, Richard Forsyth visited us, I think, about a month ago. He was a little bit upset we didn't buy the distillery off him, but when he saw what Colmark created, he kept saying, did Colmark did this? Did Colmark do that? And obviously, you know, so he was very proud and he said, John, you've made the right decision. So it was important for me to say we make Tasmanian single malt with Tasmanian technology. So that's basically my little contribution. Your little contribution, mate. It's uh, yeah. sounds like a, a crazy journey. I want to. I'm going to dig into it a little bit, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Um, and, and you know, for me, I, I might start with Callington Mill as a as a concept, right? It's a it's a lovely little town. You you, oh. you, you drive through it; it's just beautiful. And um, and you know, I'd love to understand. There's this science and art that I think you've seemed to have you know, connect together, um, you know, and I can see through from 2016 as a guy that's been curious to go down and get involved and explore a hobby or a passion to now being as deep as you are, as, as, as invested as you are. And as, I guess, as clear on the, 
the industry as you are. Can you take us through how how that's shown up as in Callington Mill? What's what, what's it all? How's it all come together? Yeah, look, the thing that really captivates me about the whiskey making process and why I fell in love with it is it's basically you can break it down to three elements. Number one, it's simply science, right? If you fry an egg, there's science at play, right? Then there's the interference in that scientific process. So human beings, the master distillers, all these people interfere in that process. So you can boil an egg, poach an egg, fry an egg, <laughs> burn an egg, <laughs> right? Same with whiskey. So we've got science at play. It's only made from three ingredients, water, barley, yeast, and then the barrel. Very simple. The interference in that process, which is the decision-making, I have some input, our, our staff have the majority input. So to collectively we interfere in that scientific pro process so we can determine to an extent what what it is we're looking for. Mm. Now, the, the, the thing that I really love more than anything is once you've locked in those methodologies and once you've made it, then you're really – there's magic at play. It's a bit like a child being born. Mm. You can determine these days medically whether you want a boy or a girl, blue eyes, green eyes, whatever. So you can get an embryo, you can get a sperm and put them together and the mother carries that in the womb. Yes. Just like our oak carries the the whiskey in its belly. Mm -hmm. So you, but you will never know. When the, until the child's born and until the child's matured, what the character is of that child, what its spirit is, you'll never know, right? This has got nothing to do with DNA. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and whiskey's the same. So, we can determine all those variables to get to a certain point where we put that whiskey. We can choose the oak, what type of X fortified, X rum, whatever we want. So, we know roughly instead of getting this result, we're going to get that result. But you'll never know the, the character the elegance, the spirit of that whiskey until it's matured. Yeah. And that is a huge waiting game and it's, it gets so exciting. So when you taste a barrel and, and you taste that sophistication in that bottle and in that from that barrel and the, the cask right next door to it could have been both Pedro Jimenez, both French oak, and they're both different. Different, yeah. And they're both beautiful. And when you mix them together, they can become even more beautiful. Go back to the human analogy again. Mm, mm. One person, elegant, they've got their character. Put a few together, you've got a team now, mm. right? Like a bit like rugby league. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so yeah. this is what I love about it. It's it's the unexpected all the time, and and it's the it's it's you, you have a bit of imagination. You create something, but then you never know what you're going to expect, and it always surprises you. And I've only been in the game now five years. Mm -hmm. And in that five years, we've we've achieved or, or produced things that have astounded us. But the real game is in 10 years and 15 and 20. So there's a hell of a lot to look forward to. It's outstanding. It's interesting when you when you talk, you talk with so much passion. And every time I've had any exposure to someone with within the whiskey game, there's that sort of excitement that comes with you know the the experience, or even that that sort of unknown part of it, right? What's the um, what is it about this that you think in the people that you've explored, you've got to know Tasmania, you've mm. had some experience? What is it? What do you is it that you see in people that seem to play in this game? Yeah, I think we go back to Bill Lark, mm. right? Although Bill and I disagree on a lot of things, 
Bill, Bill, Bill's a symbol of collaboration, right? There isn't a whiskey distillery that I visited in Australia, right, that didn't say to me, oh, Bill helped us out. Not one. So back in 2016 when I was visiting every single distillery, you know, Bill would just roll up unannounced and help. Now, that theme was evident everywhere. Everywhere I went in Scotland, this collaborative approach, you would think Scotland would say, well, we're creating a competitor, another segment. We don't want to help them. But that's not the case. How it starts is this. Whiskey belongs to a category on its own. Mm. So whiskey really wants to compete with other short drinks like vodka or tequila. So we all belong to the whiskey family, and that whiskey family, they help each other. From that, we have different categories, Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey, Japanese whiskey, Australian whiskey, Tasmanian whiskey. So from that subcategory, again, say Tasmania, we have different distilleries. It's in all our, we're a team. We're a team. Mm -hmm. And that team helps each other. Yet we're also individuals. So we also want to compete within that team as well. So, and it's a healthy competition. So... The Scots helped me out a hell of a lot. Uh, I'm also indebted to Teelings in Dublin, mm-hmm. you know, a billion-dollar business, um, Jack Teeling. I roll up there, me and Bill Lark, and I've been there a number of times and doesn't matter. They just open the distillery, let me walk around. Any questions, they not only answer the questions but they show me, you know. So it's just so much giving and, you know, that's one. Th- that's the theme. And, you know, I, I try, I hope, I don't have much to offer, but I try to sort of help wherever I can with other people that want to learn about the industry as well. It's amazing. It's, um, you know, when I, when I hear your story, right, I, I can you know, sense that there's this been progressive development and your immersion into that family, the whiskey family. And you made some, made this interesting comment because I know I can tell that you've also, you know, you're a businessman at the end of the day as well, yeah. right? And you talked about that individual, you know, competitive component as part of that family. And one thing that I'm curious about is when you think about that process, you talked about the baby being born, yes. right? And you, you don't know what it's going to taste like. Yeah. Um, how, you know, when you think about that commercially as a businessman, you say, well, there could be product X and we age it for 15 years and it's not that good. Yeah. And, it, you know, the next one is or this one has been done in a certain way and where there's this, there's this experimentation or interference as you described it. How do you, um, how do you measure that up? How do you think about that as a business? Oh, as, as a business. Yeah. Um, look, the, the first thing you've got to do is make a judgment call on what you think is a good whiskey. Mm. So, so obviously I make that call, but then I bring in a panel you know, Bill Lark, Mark Nicholson, whoever I get my hands on. So I try to have an objective perspective to it. And it's just interesting you say you compared it to people. If we have a whiskey that's no good, if you have some human beings that have gone astray, <laughs> right, usually they go to see a psychiatrist to try to work on personal development. <laughs> we, we it's good. They're going to do something about it, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. So we send our whiskey to, to do another course in psychology. <laughs> <laughs> we, we might move it from cask A and put it to cask B. Yeah, okay. So and it's a bit of a reinvention. And evolve it. Okay. Or we might put it within a, within a community. Mm-hmm. So blend it with other casks and, and try to polish it up that way. So there's ultimately the, the the name of the game is to produce a very very good whiskey, mm-hmm. right? On par with the rest of rest of the world, and you know that's that. And if you do that, 
and obviously it's, it's a, it is a business. So our challenge is to make, and I hate saying this, the best quality whiskey because that's very subjective, but a whiskey that's on par, that is not embarrassing, on par with the rest of the world, mm. and I think it's a great quality whiskey, but we've got to make that competitively at a competitive price. And, if, and our whiskey has the highest cost process but we get our efficiencies through through volume. Mm -hmm. Okay, so our retail price for our single malt, 700 mil, 46% ABV, is between $120 and $149 per bottle. Now, that is highly, highly, highly competitive, obviously within Tasmania, mm -hmm. where you're paying, as you know, a lot of money, but it's highly competitive with the world. Okay, it's highly competitive with Scots, Scottish whiskey and, and other whiskies. So that that is where if I wanted to, which I do, our mission statement is to make Callington Mill a worldwide recognisable brand. Mm. Now that might not happen in my lifetime because it's a big call to, 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 to have that vision. But what I certainly want to do is, is try to at least penetrate three or four markets in the world, try to penetrate that market and try to capitalise on that market and try to try to sit shoulder to shoulder, dare I say it, with McAllen and with Glenfiddich and these big iconic brands. You're uh, well, you're giving it a good good nudge, aren't you? At so the moment, far, yeah. from what I gather, it's uh, it's an impressive journey, and I, you know, it's it's interesting that this sort of leads to my next question is, yeah, you know, when you look at what you were sharing there around you know, penetrating market. And I guess this is me having this business side of the chat. So I, I, I yeah. apologize if it's, no, you know, no, I just getting no. super curious about it, right? Is <clears throat> it, the, it's a, you described it subjective. Mm. So the taste of Brad might be like, wow, that is amazing. And the next person along says, well, that, oh, I don't, don't like that one, but this one. And there's this relationship with whiskey and there's a certain type of drinker. I'd imagine that you understand your audience. Who is, well, who is the audience? Who, who, who's the, the typical customer for, for a Callington Mill drop? Well, mate, the, the short answer is I have no no damn idea yeah, of that. Wow. But, you know, I mean, I don't, I should say, I don't know definitively, mm. right? But I made a conscious decision to ensure that our whiskey builds a reputation. The reputation is what we're trying to build. We only use ex-fortified wine mm. casks. Now, that's really, that's the highest cost factor in any maturation of any whiskey, right? They're highly sought after casks. They, for example, if you mature your whiskey in a bourbon cask, a bourbon cask, cask will cost somewhere in the order of $200 or a sherry cask somewhere in the order of $2,000. Yeah, yeah. So there's your price difference. So according to my palate and according to a lot of the sophisticated palates that I've come to understand, is those types of whiskies that are finished in fortified are luxurious, elegant, complex whiskies. And that's the the market that we're trying to target. If you look at the Chinese market, they love wine, uh, whiskey, I beg your pardon, that's more on the sweeter side. Mm -hmm. So ours has that. We also have dry fortified. For example, Oloroso is a very dry Fino's very dry, so we've we've got a spectrum of them, yep. but we've also got the real sweet stuff like Pedro Jimenez, you know. So we're we're having 
diversity within the fortified range. This is the category and hopefully within that category, then the, the real whiskey lovers will find something within that that they love. But we're not going to be a bourbon. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be we're not going to be all things to all people. So we want to build a reputation and hopefully over time, and it's going to take a long time, that, that we build a following for, for that, for the style of whiskey that we sh- hopefully will become we'll, renowned we'll be known for. Yeah, it's, it, I love that idea that, you know, you, you, you can't be everything to everyone. Well, I don't want to be a lolly shop. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's interesting because it's sort of, um, you know, when you look at Tasmania, uh, and, and I've only done a little bit of research around this marketplace, and I'd love to hear your opinion on it, but there's some stat I heard that there's one still for every 7,000 people in, in Tasmania, yeah. there's, there's, there's 80 odd stills at the moment. And it's, it's obviously, you know, evolving. Yeah. How do you see What do you see in terms of the future of <clears throat> whiskey in Tasmania? How are you playing a role in that? What's your vision for it? Yeah, look, first of all, the pioneers of Tasmania, mm. right? The, the Patrick Maguire, Bill Lark, Damien Mackey, Casey Overing, these guys and girls, um, um, Lynn Lark, um, they've produced something. They've produced, well, they've put Tasmanian whiskey on the world stage, right? So with that then, I came along, obviously, right? So they paved the way and not only me but 80 other distilleries. So you, you, there's something magical happening in Tasmania and with that, there's a rush to fill that, that void. Mm. Now, what you'll see I believe happen in the next five to ten years is you'll unfortunately you'll you will see a lot of distilleries just drop off as well. Okay, so not the market will rationalise. Yeah, right. The market will rationalise. I might be one of the casualties as well. We, we you don't know. So uh, what I definitely know, what I hundred percent definitely believe in, is that there are a few brands that will become prominent on the world stage. Like Lark is probably, in my opinion, the biggest name in Australia, okay, very highly respected and its founder is one of two people. Well, the Hall of Fame, yeah. yeah. the Whiskey Hall of Fame. And the real power behind Bill, though, is his wife, Lynn. <laughs> you know, so, but look, the market will rationalise and there'll be casualties as well this is normal in any sort of business yeah it's it is it is so it's it'll be interesting to see where it goes and and i guess you know i do want to change gears a little bit because you know we could talk about whiskey for a long time i'm sure and i I, i'd like you know it's one of those things we only have so much time brad we're going to work through it but um you know, for a lot of our listeners, some of them are going to be interested in whiskey, some of them are not. You know, the the, the conversations usually around this sort of pursuit of performance and, and you know, uh, performance is a subjective thing. It's, you know, what's good for you is not necessarily good for me. For sure. But if you step back and just think about John, you know, as a person you've been, you are the person you've become, what's motivated all this for you over the years? What's Where's it all come from? Where do I start? Look, I think... For me, I, I don't know how this happened, but at some point in my life, I realised I was deluded. I just realised that everything I knew, everything I knew was put into me. Like, 
a human being's born into the world, mm. into their, and, and they grow up in their environment, and they accept everything. So I decided I, I could see some things were just false. So I thought to myself, they say the beginning of wisdom is emptiness, right? So I thought for me, to, I just wanted to be honest with myself and honest with the way I saw things. I thought, and I did that, and I consciously did that for my own self-interest. Okay, so. At what stage is this you're talking about? It happened a very young stage for me. I would say probably at about 22, when I first bought my business. Okay. You know, so I realized there were a lot of dysfunctionality within myself in the way I looked at my business and the way I was. And, you know, you can't change your external. You always have to change internal. Mm. I think it was Gandhi that said, be the change you want to see in others, mm -hmm. right? So I realised, and I was very, very lucky, I, I, I realised early on that I'm the problem here. So I, I just emptied myself up. I questioned everything, mm. you know. I love my mum and dad and I questioned that, right? I looked at my parents as human beings. I didn't, because before you would just make excuses for them. Mm. Dad was the best human being on planet Earth and mum was the best human being on planet Earth. But, you know, that, that's just not true. Yeah. What did you, what you learn from them? What was, oh, there's a, what, look, was the, what were the observations that helped well, you frame what's important to you? Uh, for example, mum and dad were completely different. Let's talk about from a business perspective. Mum, mum lived within financial walls. She loved the budget. She carried the pain of the, the financial pain of the, the family. Dad just wanted to give. Mm -hmm. Dad had a heart of gold, but he, he just wanted to give his children everything, mm. right? But he didn't have everything to give. Mm. So, so dad would earn money and yeah, especially around Christmas time, which was for most people a fun time for us, it wasn't. Mm. So dad would earn his holiday money and we knew what would happen. You know, he'd take us out. <laughs> We'd say we don't want anything, right? But he'd take us out, splurge on, on us blow his, his holiday pay, and then we have three, four weeks of, of basic financial hardship. So these things taught me to not want to be like that, mm. you know. So, you know, you just be honest with yourself, I think. Look at your environment. Evaluate things based on reality and program yourself to, to, to be that, especially in, in, in business. Mm. Business is like science. Science has no room, right, for lies, yeah. right? It's all evidence-based. Now, given what they know at that point in time, and science celebrates all the time when they're wrong mm -hmm. because they cease to be wrong. I, I, just, I, I really get a lot of my inspiration from these sorts of, this sort of information. Mm -hmm. Right, so I just adopt, adopt that. So in business, I keep measuring myself, looking at what we're what we're doing, what, whether we're right or wrong. If you take a simple business, petrol station, or any business, we're trying to optimize revenue, mm. minimize cost, right, without sacrificing quality, yeah. and then build that KPI, that relationship between cost and revenue, and you know. <laughs> dare I say it, make as much money as we can. Yes. Right? And it goes hand in hand.
and without sacrificing your values, right, without sacrificing your values because you can cheat a system, you can do something and you make a short-term gain, but it's a long-term pain. Yeah, well, it almost sounds like the, the description of the way you describe the creation of the whiskey, right? It's that scientific method and you've got some interference which happens to be your values. Yes. Right? There is a subjective yes. component to that. Yes. Uh, what's, you, you know, it's interesting, you talked about delusion before. Yeah. Right? What's, what, what's an example of where you've been caught out with delusion, where you've gone, oh, Geez, geez, John, I've got to, you got to, I've got to, I've got to reset this. I'm, I, this is not, this is not the way I should be attacking it. Well, I'll give you an example of delusion that's not really delusion in 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 the common term. I I originally I had I had very low self esteem, right? So I bought my first business, and we weren't doing well. Now, I won't go through all the – it's a long story. That's okay. yeah. But I was the problem. When I sat there and analysed myself, my delusion was my self – my my, my um, devaluing myself, mm. right, because we were a poor family and here I am in business and I wasn't attracting money. I was actually subconsciously repelling success mm. without even knowing I was doing that. <laughs> and a good friend of mine – Scott Hartley, I'll mention his name because he, he he sat down and just gave me a pep talk, right? And I listened to him and I reprogrammed myself and reprogrammed my whole business completely without going th through the detail. And then from that point on, I allowed myself, I thought I was worthy enough to actually be a boss because I hated <laughs> being a boss. I thought, who the hell am I to have staff? It really, it, it was all built from trauma, delusion, trauma from my childhood. So I allowed myself, I thought, to my, I, what I said to myself was, we're all human beings. We're all born in different set of circumstances. We're all equal, right? We all, especially in this beautiful country, Australia, have opportunity. Some people Everyone's got their own unique pathway. Yep. So I'm going to allow myself to be successful. I'm going to allow myself to drive a BMW. I'm going to allow myself these things. And when I did do that, I wasn't, I didn't have a hang up about it anymore. Yeah. Okay. You know, and, and all of a sudden, pathways started to open to me. So that, that was one delusion that, that um, I had to conquer. When, when you talk about that, you know, I would often, you know, accept that not only you experience that, but nearly everyone experiences some form of delusion, you know, and you might label that version of it as like an imposter syndrome at that stage of your life. As people listening to this call, this discussion saying, I'm probably victim of that. I, I, I don't deserve that. I feel like I'm playing out of my game. I've been through it myself. I still remember, um, you know, going in, doing consulting work and working with organisations going, well, I haven't really dealt with that problem before. Um, and my mindset was, and when I was actually similar conversation, my mindset that I was taught to, to sort of go back to was, well, you're really good at solving problems. You know, that's, that's my capability. And that's the, I guess the science mm. in the, in the, uh, the situation you described before, when you're talking about the relationship between whiskey and, and ultimately just working through situations in your life. But you know, for you, mate, you, 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 you're lucky you've, you've lived a, a good life. You've had experience dealing with probably staff, team members, peers, business partners, 
where do you see delusions sometimes just catch people out, this idea of, of tricking themselves or not being honest with themselves? In every aspect of your life, mm. in every aspect, if you look deeply into yourself and, and, and you try to anchor yourself in the truth, you start to find it. For example, let's look at a simple thing since we're talking business is, is, is your domestic finance. Mm. Every single home is a business. Mm whether you want to admit that or not, right? So it's got money coming in and money going out. And it's a struggle. Like we've been there. I've, I've lived it. And, and to be quite blunt, I hated living that. You know, we were evicted out of rental homes when we, when we were younger and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, as soon as I achieved a certain level of financial success, a lot of people, my family and friends, <laughs> a lot of people have come and asked me for advice on how to manage their financial, their finances at home. Mm. Now, when you look at that, when I went in and I, I hated, I learned after maybe 10 cases, I hated when I was asked that question mm. because you have to ask personal questions. Well, it's quite per yeah, it's a personal yeah. conversation, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So what I noticed was a common theme is as soon as you showed the income on one ledger and you wrote down what the necessities, forget luxurious things, you know, things that you must have, you know, with your rent or your mortgage payment and, and, and everything else, food. When you balance that with that and it immediately became deficit, they didn't want to know about it. They did not want to address it, right? So they just quickly change the subject. Oh, look, there's a, there's a mistake here somewhere. And it's that delusion that just doesn't want – and it's same in business. Mm -hmm. The, the, the same in business. You can just, what is it, 90% I think of all small businesses go broke. Yeah, in the first two years, yeah. And they're the lucky ones. Mm. They're the lucky ones because they've gone broke. Ha out of the whatever it is, 10% that are still there, 90% struggle, right? So they're working for virtually free to keep the doors open. You can see those businesses. If you just walk the streets and you can see families, everyone, and it's great from that point of view. All families are, are merging together and supporting each other, but at the end of the day, they're flogging a dead horse, Yeah, yeah. right? So that's one aspect of delusion. You can look at personal things, for example, uh, your children. You can, you love your children, so you just delude yourself. I know my they're not doing drugs or my son's not involved with bad people or you know, you, you've got other forms of delusion with your partner, you know. Mm -hmm. you, you, you delude yourself, that women delude themselves, their, their husband might bash them and they just keep, they blame, They might even blame themselves yeah. for yeah. that. So there's all forms of delusion. Yeah. And I just think it's important to look within yourself, yeah. okay, and, you know, to quote the Bible, not that I'm of much of a biblical person, but, you know, the kingdom of God is within you, mm. right? So if you look at any philosophical book at all, anything, anything about self-help, it's all about looking inside and reprogramming yourself, mm. you know? When you look at yourself, mate, I think that's an interesting conversation because you look at the situation and, and just that simple household budget concept, yeah. like, you know, we that's just an example of lots of different situations we might find ourselves in. So I think anyone listening to this, this is, I'd, I'd encourage you to think about this question, right? So that situation can be owned, 
okay, right, that's reality. Um, I can either accept it or change it. Um, and often when you think about that change, it's motivated by something. Maybe it's fear. Or maybe it's, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's a re the reality of not wanting something to happen as a result of that situation. For you, you know, you've talked a lot about, you know, your, your parents and the, you know, the eviction from rental and just sort of that, that, you know, that Christmas period time. And, and then you've got this other side where you, you know, quite practical and quite pragmatic and going, well, right, I've got to kind of play the game right here. Mm. Uh, does it come from a place of fear for you? Does it come from moving away from that type of, uh, that thought process of not wanting to be where I was before? I, I certainly had fear. I think it comes from managing your fear. Mm. I think what I, what I, I've identified what it is that was fear-based in myself. Yeah. Look, I constantly evaluate my behaviour all the time. Mm. Not that I'm trying to be something to someone. I do that for m myself, yeah. right, to better understand myself. So, and, and, and just to be happier, yeah. just to be happy within myself. And, you know, the, the truth will set you free. So th there were a lot of things I was fearful of. I, I was fearful to buy a business, mm. you know. Um, I was fearful of authority, you know. So there was a lot of things. So, but what I do is I try to rationalise my way through it, mm. think it through. You can call it meditation. I, I sit alone for a minimum, 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 two hours a day. So if I don't have that alone time, at least two hours a day where I can just reset and reevaluate, I can't function. Yeah, wow. I really can't function. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for 30-odd years yeah. more. Yeah. So it's just I think about the world, I think about the circumstances, I think about the people I love. And I accept them the way they are. I try to help where I can. But again, I, you know, the, the anchor for me is your own mind mm. and to be founded in the truth. Napoleon Hill in a book I read said, whatever the mind can conceive and believe, the mind can achieve. Gee. And that is for negative stuff as well, mm. you know. So if you really think you're worthless and if you really think you don't deserve something like that. The universe won't give you what you want. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's not just, oh, I deserve $20 million. I deserve it, so it's going to happen now. <laughs> no, yeah. it's not. You know, you've really got to identify within yourself, mm. okay, what it is you want to do, have a concrete pathway to that, and then give it your all. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and that takes work, right? Like well, life is work. It uh, takes total life, dedication. Li life is, yeah, and, and there's dedication that you can either lean into or not. And, you know, the, the thing I often talk to people about in, in my world is this idea of slowing down to speed up, right? Mm. And you just use that example of having Very two, important. two hours to, mm. to do that. What, you know, I, I just see some people just literally going from the next thing to the next thing and everything. And they wonder sometimes why there's this sort of tripping moment. And, and I can only talk to that because I've lived it. I've made that mistake. I've been through situations where I've just gone into a circle or pivoted myself around and, you know, look back and go, why didn't you just slow down and have a think and look at that properly? And now you mm. do this daily. You've said mm. you've done it for nearly 30 years. Was there a moment where you 
kind of triggered on that and said, oh, this is helpful. Like, you know, when, when did that start? Or do you, do you, can you recall why that became a, a healthy habit? For me, it became a habit when I first bought my business, mm. right? And I was, I left a good job and, you know, I, I did reasonably well as a wage earner. Mm. We bought one home. We had a fibro cottage house, which was the joy of my life, right? It was, I never thought I was worthy enough to even own a house. So I was a wage earner. We lived in a fibro house in George's Hall with a big backyard. Mm-hmm. I could run then. So it was 200 metres. So I could actually chip kick and run and exercise. I loved it, you know. So it, 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 back then to transition from that security into business traumatised me, mm. right? And I couldn't understand all the variables why. Once I managed them, well, once I managed myself, Right. For example, I thought if I owned my own business, if I worked hard, I was going to get success. Mm. And I remember once I went to work, I stayed there for 48 hours, right? And I went to wash my face in the bathroom and I looked and I had a beard. <laughs> and I thought, geez, I've been here long, 48 hours, and I was achieving no success. Mm. Now, I'm not saying hard work doesn't give you that. You need to work hard, but you need to also be smart. Yes. You need to understand what you're doing too. You need to delegate. You need to build a a system. So mm-hmm. if you look at an organization, for example, in business, it's called organization. What does that mean? It, it means it's they're organized. structure. Yeah. Look at Dubai Airport. I love using that as an example. How complex is that place, mm-hmm. right? Any mistake results in people dying. Any mistake. Imagine the goods coming into the airport and you've got to protect as well from terrorism and all this sort of stuff. This is a very hard business to run. But if you're organised, you have people, you have process and you've thought it all through and you continuously evolve the processes, right, you end up with with this. That's what I was lacking. That's what I wasn't doing. Mm. Right, so I just worked in the business. I cleaned the toilets, I stacked the fridge, and I thought, "Look how hard I work! I, I'll be rewarded now." That wasn't the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's so what's a typical two-hour reflection involve for you when you're sort of tuning out? Oh. What are you What are you sketching out these days? Well, obviously my behaviour and and those that I love, yeah. and how I can be, how, how I can help them if they need it, and how I can. Uh, change to 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 add value to their and meaning to their life, but the, you know as well. I'm obsessed with the geopolitical climate of the world. Mm. You know, I really worry about that. I worry about the war in in Ukraine and Russia. You know, and and I worry about the media that gives a one sided version of what's happening there, which is very dangerous. I worry about our stance with China. Um, again, I, I believe you've got to give that dynamic context. Mm-hmm. There's two sides to every story. Mm-hmm. And the Western media, for some reason, only wants to show one side. And that concerns me because it doesn't matter what you think of the other side. It's mm-hmm. not important, mm-hmm. right? They're nuclear armed. We're nuclear armed. And it's just when you think 
that no one will be stupid enough to use it. As soon as a human being becomes complacent or an entity, that's when you're going to have tragedy. Mm. You know, so we've averted it with 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 the Cuban Missile Crisis and all these sort of other dynamics. We've gone to war with Iraq and lost. Gone to war with Afghanistan and lost. Gone to war with Vietnam and lost. Mm. And we haven't learned anything. Mm. If we've lost, what were we fighting for in those days? Mm. So whatever it was didn't come to get us. So totally, it's just a fact, Yeah, right? And I hate war and I cannot believe human beings in 2023 have not evolved out of war. Mm. And the reason is very simple. It's the other ugly side of business because war is also big business, right? And that's a business we need to eradicate. It's like there's a war around us in in all respects, in ideology and in, in, as you say, in, in, in the literal sense. <clears throat> and you made that comment before about the media and one of the earlier comments you had was around truth, right? And I, and I often wonder, uh, you know, in business, in life, in, in just what we see in the broader world, you know, some people want to think about what they can control and that's just their world and others emerge into thinking about what you're thinking about, right? What's is it a case of you piecing together what you see as the truth and the reality so you can make sense of it? Oh yeah, look, the the truth the, the truth is very hard to find. Mm. It takes a lot of effort, right? Freedom, mm. freedom. Human beings have always enslaved human beings throughout their history, throughout their fifty fifty thousand year history. Mm. It's common. What we've what we have in the West is an accident, and your freedoms have been deteriorated as well. Freedom is something you have to continuously always work on. Mm. And as soon as it moves away, you've got to claw it back, claw it back. It's it's earned and it's earned with blood, right? So, and truth is the same. If you lie to yourself, there's a lovely book called People of the Lie written by Dr. Scott Peck. I thoroughly recommend you read that, mm. right? It, once people lie, they lose themselves, right? They're not, they're not even conscious anymore that they're lying, mm -hmm. you see. Mm -hmm. They're not even a, a, aware of it. And this is proven. People will even die for a false belief. They will die for a false belief. So it's, 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 it's the, 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 the light is elusive and it's, You've, you've always got to be very humble, very vigilant and really do everything in your power to listen to all sides to start to formulate what you think is the truth, mm. you know. So, and you can, you, you, you can filter it out. So there'll be facts and, and, and opinions. F you know, for example, I can factually say that there's water in this. Mm-hmm. Right, mm -hmm. people that say no, it's wine. Well, we've got an issue, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's it's definitely water. But you can say I like this water, or I don't like this water. It's too salty. Yes. Now that that is very grey. So when you're discussing topics, I think it's very important to lay concrete, observable facts that are grounded in evidence based on what our senses can pick up now. 
because if I looked at you under a microscope, I'm going to see a lot of carbon atoms. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, it's a bunch of you're a bunch of atoms. <laughs> so, yes. so people say, no, there's no Brad. There's just a lot of atoms running around. <laughs> well, but is is it not our own, you know, our own human, um, I guess, condition, right? That we we're attracted to these stimuli, this sense of yes, uh, you know, enthusiasm for wanting uh, to see something sensational on the news and, and then in avoid reality, you know, is it, is it, you know, it's, it happens in business, happens in life, happens we in the We delegate news. our thinking. Do we we yeah. delegate our thinking. Mm. The, the, the average person, and, and, and I don't mean that derogatory, is everyone's too busy, mm. right? Everyone's trying to make ends meet. Everyone's trying to support their family. So you just want to see what's going on. And this is where... I believe government has a role to play, a huge role that they've lost their their role, and 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 the media, the government should keep the media mm-hmm. honest and 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 independent. And the media is not at this point in time, mm-hmm. right? It's it simply bombards you with garbage, right, and and gives you just little snippets. You know, for example, Putin is just an evil person that just wants to conquer the world. I mean, okay, give me some facts. Give me some some context. Give me some, let me work it out myself, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not saying Putin isn't that, by yes, the way. Yes, yes. I'm just saying that we don't want to, we have to learn to live in a world that isn't the same as us. Yes. Right? That doesn't share the values we set, we, we share. Australia is Australia. It's I've travelled the world. The best country on planet Earth by far is Australia. Mm-hmm. And we want to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we won't lose it, mm-hmm. right? We want to keep it that way. And we, in, we can change the world exactly as a human can change the world. Be the change you want in, to see in the world. Mm-hmm. Australia is and should be the change that they want. They should be the shining light that they want China to follow, North Korea to follow, Iran to follow, whoever. Mm. But don't threaten. Don't say it's inevitable that we're going to have a war. Mm. You know, don't poke the bear, right? Let's dialogue, diplomacy and mutual respect Mm. are the foundations to deal with everybody. Yeah. And I know we're going into a more philosophical chat, but I think a lot of people listening to this are, are Australians that care for where of course they, they are, are, right? So, and, you know, we, you know, I, I often say this to friends when I grew up, I felt like there was a clear vision of what it meant to be an Australian, what it meant to be, where we're going. And, and you know, maybe that was just the simplicity and naivety of being a young kid, right? And, you know, just listening to what dad had to say and those sorts of things. But you made a comment about, you know, as, as we go through life, we're making sense of it and, and maybe we're, we're not we're not slowing down enough to do that, right? Um, and then on the other side, you're a guy that embraces nature. <laughs> you know, you're a guy that's sort of, well, let's just get back to basics. Uh, are we clear about, do you think Australians are clear about where we're going? Do you think there's a simplicity that we can just focus on and agree on that's important? Or is it a case of just dealing with all this complexity? Well, it's a big that. question. It's a huge question. Look, First of all, I think if, if you look at the background, the history of, of, of Australia, right? Australia was built by convicts, basically, and Australians 
deplore the class system of England, mm. right? The, yeah, if there's a microcosm of the world that they should that they should learn from is is Australia. We don't care. Australians don't give a shit, right? How much money you've got, all that tall poppy syndrome. They really are a fair go, mate, mm. right? And that's that. I think is the defining uh, thread of of what it means to to to, to be Australian. A fair, a fair go is what I grew up on. Yeah, but is that still the case? I think so. I, I think so. I think it's probably leaning a little bit towards an American style, mm. right? And and you know, but I think. The majority of the population just knock them down, right? Mm. I think at the end of the day, I know some really, really wealthy people um, from various countries, and the most humble, mm. and the most anchored, and the most real are Aussies. Mm. You know, Aussies. There's no doubt about that. Very nice. You know, and I, I love that. I wouldn't wouldn't want to be in any other culture. Yeah, we are very lucky, my friend. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. And we want to keep it that way, though. Yeah, you're totally right. You know, mate, I might change gear one more time. And I, I, I know you mentioned kicking the ball in the backyard of your first home, 200 meters out the yeah. back. And uh, uh, you, you know, secretly, I know you're a doggies fan. Of course, I know you. You, you love your sport. I was, uh, I was at your um, your son-in-law's 40th, and mm -hmm. you were talking to the one of the bulldog. Greats, you know, uh, the general talking about uh, sport, but we're going down to the dogs per se. But I'm just curious on what you, as a guy that you know is in business, as a as a father, as a a person, you observe. Like we all observe things, and sports something you've you've had the chance to observe over the years. You're passionate about it. What what have you observed through th sport that helps you as a person in terms of the way you think? Again, personal development. Mm. You want to play first grade, you've got to work on yourself. Mm. Now, I played a little bit of schoolboy, so I'll just use me as an example if I, if I can, and I'm sure that applies to every single first grade football player. When I used to run out on that footy field, because I was average, I was average sports person, mm. so I, I worked very hard. So I was in mum and dad's backyard every second of my life. I was practising chip, kicks, sidestep, everything, everything. So when I ran out on that field, I had to say to myself, could I have done more? And the answer had to be no, mm. that there was nothing else I could do. So I ran out on that field and then when I ran off the field, I had to ask myself another question. Is there any fuel left in the tank? Mm. And the had, answer had to be no. Now, there was a lot of times when the answer was yes, right, because you got lazy. Yeah. That, all that second phase stuff, all that backup stuff, you get lazy. Mm. You think I'll take shortcut. And it's those little inches that you don't do that cost you the game, right? Mm. And football is exactly life. It's exactly life. The principles, the values, they're all identical. Yes. So the real football players, the ones that, you know, the Jonathan Thurston's of the world and all, all, all this part, they're totally obsessed. Mm. They're totally dedicated, right? Hazamel Masary kept kicking that ball till it became second nature. Mm. Are you right. obsessed? What not, you, not, not with football. Not with football. What are you, what are you obsessed about? <laughs> uh, learning, gaining knowledge, gaining insight. My real obsession is my family. 
and now it's it's my whiskey business mm. and living in Australia. Mm. You know, I, I thank God every single day. We, 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 we're just blessed. So that's probably my obsession now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So where's um, if Jonathan Thurston or one of these guys is the, yeah, the, the pinnacle of, you know, that in sport, where, where are you on your journey? In terms of, oh, you know, where's John today? In business? No, just in life. Where are you? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly at, at um, Jonathan Thurston's level. Yeah. Definitely in life. I mean, I love my life. I've had a lot of tragedy in my life, hell of a lot of tragedy, but you learn, you grow. And I live, I'm lucky. Money gives you opportunity for one thing and one thing only, mm. to live how you want to live. Mm. It gives you the freedom to do what you want. Mm. And I've taken full advantage of that. Mm. Probably for the last 20 odd years, at least 25 years, money has allowed me to just be me. Mm. And and that that is what I've, and how else, why wouldn't you be happy? Yeah. You know, so I do exactly what makes me happy. And, and a lot of that is being around my family, being around my friends, and especially being in, in Tasmania. So, John, this is an interesting question, and I, I expect it might be challenging. But in the last 10, 20 years, you've um, had the chance to see a lot in the world. What is it that you've changed your mind on over the years? What have I changed my mind on? I wish you'd give me an example. What have I changed my mind on? Probably the standout for me would be religion, right? Um, obviously, there's 5,000 religions on planet Earth. Each and every one of them think they're right. And when you look at what they have to say, it's they're all dogmas. They're all, you know... You've, you've, you're going to burn in hell if you don't take the Holy Communion on Sunday or whatever it is. So I've just always had the view that, well, I respect every religion, but I've changed recently and I've thought, well, no, I'm not going to. They can't all be right. And again, they can't all be right because they're different teachings, right? So... Maybe one can be right, right, because everyone thinks that. So I've formed the view that they're all wrong. They're all man-made constructs, all of them. But they attempt to do some good. They attempt to talk about spirituality. They attempt to talk about the unknown. So all I've, what I've done is put a common thread through them all. And I, and I think what they all should do is not attempt but be humble, admit you don't know. Let's just pick the eyes out of it that we like that is common for all human beings because we're, we are all human beings and our belief is based on purely where we're born. So if we can turn around and say, righto, we don't know where we came from, we don't know where we're going, we are petrified of death, we don't know what's happened to my father who's passed away, to my brother who's passed away. I would love to believe they're in heaven, right? But I'm humble enough, and I think we all have to be humble enough as human beings to hold hands 
embrace each other and say, we don't know, and that's okay. Now, we can talk about what we think and what we hope, and I believe what we do, what it tries to do, religion, is teach love and teach us to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And if we just embrace that philosophy, right, I think it just brings everyone together rather than argue about stupid points of religion where we kill each other because of it. So I'd like to, that's my change, a big change, because, you know, I was born a Catholic, I went to Catholic schools, and I just decided to reject all man-made constructs and embrace spirituality and talk about common threads that unite all the religions and bring us all together in love and harmony and peace. That's probably it. Well, mate, I want to congratulate you on all of that. I, I uh, firstly want to also thank you. You know, this, uh, this sort of conversation, um, I think, you know, you've had a chance to reflect as you're talking, I can see it. Um, yeah. but equally a lot of people, when they listen to this, it's their chance to reflect. It's their chance in sure. the car while they're driving to, to think about things. And I think what you give is a, a gift to just prompt them to have a look at things, have a, have a question that might be just one little nugget of what you've shared today, mate. Yeah. But, uh, I, uh, I really admire everything you've had to share and, and I thank you for for uh, all the uh, investment in the discussion, mate. I appreciate it. Mate, I'm honoured to be here. Thank you very much. Good on you. Thank you, John. I hope, thank you. It was lovely talking to you, mate. You, you, you're the key. Your personality, your warmth, your sincerity, your genuine interest, it, it, it's very revealing.